Amen. All right. So um, we're, we're at a really interesting portion of Scripture here. And, and what we've done every time the past couple of weeks is we've kind of had to do some setup, setup work, right, to, to where we can really begin to understand, like, what's being written here um, by, by first understanding the context in which it's written, Right? So uh, we spent a lot of time in Isaiah these past couple of weeks, which is a, a significant book in the Old Testament, those books that were written before Jesus, right? And, and, and so what we have to do here is very much similar in that we have to understand where it is that the nation of Israel is at sort of in its history in order to understand not only the, the, the hope and the glory of the words that are being spoken to David, but its ultimate and final fulfillment in Jesus, right? So um, at this point in time, the, the nation of Israel, right, is that, it's that people, the descendants of, of Abraham, right? So God in Genesis comes to a man named Abraham. He makes this, this declaration, this covenant, this promise to the man named Abraham, right? And he says, from your offspring, I'm going to make a great nation. And through that nation, I will bless all nations. And really, every book leading up to 2 Samuel at this point is a chronicling of the story of that people. That as that people grows, as more people are born into that people, right, what it, what it looks like for them to then follow God. And what we see more often than not is that that people is consistently sort of tripping over themselves, right, failing to, to follow God in the way that God has asked them to do so, right? And so we see Moses' frustration in Exodus when he leads that people out of captivity, when they wander in the desert, right? And the Lord brings them into a place where, where maybe they're a little bit more established in the land, right? And then there's a period during which there are judges ruling over the people of Israel. And that is, uh, if, you've, if you've read that book, a, a quite uncomfortable time for the people of Israel. And so what... What really comes to pass, I think, or where we arrive at in, in 2 Samuel is at the back end of a period of, of incredible strife in terms of the, the, the government and really the prosperity of the nation of, of Israel, right? So they're in a season where it's like we've got these 12 judges, it's not really working out, everything has been kind of weird. We had Moses who was a great patriarch, but he wasn't really a monarch, he wasn't a king, so it was just a really strange time in the identity of this nation, this people, the people of Israel. And so 2 Samuel is significant in that where we are now, God has established a, a king in Israel. Right? The, first, the first king of Israel, Saul, and now we arrive at the reign of the second king, the, the anointed king, David. So, this is a hopeful, this is a hopeful season. This is a new era, a new, a new season in the in the life of this people, this nation of Israel, where they have longed for rulership, where they have longed for some clarity in the direction of the people, where they've longed for all these things and they believe that it's going to be met through a king. And just, um, just as a way to sort of set that up, the last line in the book of Judges says this, and there was no king in Israel and all the people did as they saw fit. And so this is, this is sort of the disunity that Israel is in, that, that God now establishes a, a kingship, a monarchy in through Saul, through David, and this is what takes place. We arrive at 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? Saul has passed away. David takes upon himself, or not takes upon himself, but is anointed as king of Israel. He conquers all of his enemies, and he comes to a place where it's like he can breathe, and this is what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. 
the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And so this is significant, right? Because again, the people of Israel up to this point, for the most part, for the, for the majority of their history had been a, a nomadic people, right? A people who had journeyed, who had journeyed throughout sort of the, the wilderness, had been caught up in Egypt, had been, right? They're a, they're a nomadic people. Now they are in a, in a, in a place, right? A, a, a place that the Lord has established for them, that, that the Lord through the work of David has now conquered and brought underneath the, the reign and rule of this kingship of Israel. And, this, and so this is what David says. Right? He says, look, we've, it's been established. I have, a, I have a home that has been built up. There's a sense of permanence to it. I'm not living in a tent anymore. So how is it then fitting that this ark of the, the Lord, this, this tangible, visible um, sense of God's presence still dwells in a tent? All right, so he's, he's got this great, this good desire that Nathan goes on to affirm in verse 3, and he says, and Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. All right, so David says, like, this is it. This is us. We're, this is our kingdom. We're establishing here. We're, we're making roots here. We're, gonna, we're not only going to build the king's house, but we're going to build a house for the Lord, a great house for the Lord. And this is, this is what takes place, right? So Nathan, who's a prophet, says to David, he's like, all right, yeah, go and do that. That sounds great. But then the Lord shows up to Nathan, and he says this, But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, right? So go and tell my my servant David this thing, would you build me a house to dwell in, question mark. Now, we can get confused if we don't understand how this is being written, right? He's not asking David to build him a house. As we keep reading, look what he says. I I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought the people up from Israel, out of Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In, in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Right? So here's what, here's what God's saying. He's saying, look, I've never, I've never asked you to build, to build me a house of cedar. Is there, is there any moment in the history of this people that I've ever asked any of the judges or any of the people of Israel to provide this thing for me? And then he says this in verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So he says, no, right? I, I haven't asked for that previously. Say this instead to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, 
as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So here's what, here's what takes place, right? David has this altogether, I think, good desire in that he wants to honor the Lord by, by creating this space in which he will dwell that is wonderful, that is worthy of praise, that is in some sense permanent, and that it is no longer a tent made to be taken up and put down. And God says, you know what? That's, that's great, David, but look, this is, what I'm, this is what I am doing. This is what I'm actually doing. This is what I'm about. This is what's taking place. This is what I am going to do. This is the, the covenant that God essentially makes with, with this King David, an extension of this great lineage, the lineage of Abraham, the, the person to whom God said, I will make a great nation through you, a nation that will bless all nations. And so what is it that that happens here? What is it that God promises to this man, David? What is it that, this, that, that God promises to this, this king of Israel? There's, there's a ton of things in here, and so I, I just kind of wrote them down in a list. But in verse 9, there's a promise of relief from the enemy, right? Also in verse 9, there's a promise of a great name. In verse 10, there's a promise of a place. Also in verse 10, a promise of peace. A promise of a house, a home in verse 11. A promise of offspring in verse 12. A promise of a kingdom in verse 13. A promise of discipline in verse 14. And a promise of a love that will not depart in verse 15. And finally and fully a promise of eternity. The eternity of all of those things in verse 16. And here's what we begin to note, I think, in this, right? So this is a moment where the king of Israel, this man David, a good man, a man that we know from Scripture is a man after God's own heart, someone worthy of, of honor, right, has this desire to do something for the Lord, and yet the Lord looks at David and he says, no, this is what I'm going to do for you. And so what we begin to see is that the story that God is weaving in and through the Bible and that the story that God is initiating here and consummating in Jesus is one that is entirely devoid of anything being required ultimately from us. The most notable thing about this covenant that the Lord initiates or speaks to His servant David is that it is devoid of condition. Right? Is there, is there any moment in this in which we see the Lord say, if I do these things, then, David, you must do these things. Or if, David, you do this, then I, the Lord, will do this. We don't see any of that, do we? We just, say, we just see, I, the Lord, will give you relief from your enemy. I will give you a great name. I will give you a place. I will give you peace. I will give you a house. I will give you offspring, a kingdom, discipline, love that will not depart for all eternity. So where David was hoping to provide God with something, a temple, a home worthy of his presence, God tells David instead that he will provide all of the aforementioned things and more. So you can, you can begin to imagine that this people who have wandered for so long, who have just been given sort of this initiation of a kingship, a monarchy, a ruler, a good ruler, that these words would be filled with hope, that they would be filled with a sense of like, yes, I, like, I feel that coming, I sense that coming. But what's, 
What's interesting here, and if you go on to, to, to sort of read the, the remainder of the Old Testament, especially the following books, um, we, we find out that, yes, God does those things in a, in a real and in-time literal sense, but really what is taking place here is that God is talking about fulfilling this, doing these things in a far more abundant, in a far more overarching sense through the person and work of Jesus. Right? We see in this, he alludes to, God alludes to this son that will come from David. Right, that one of one of David's sons, one of David's lineage, someone of his heritage will come and will establish these things forever. And when we go to Matthew one one, we discover pretty clearly, pretty quickly, who that person is. Or when we go even to Luke chapter one, verses twenty six through thirty two, I'm just going to read it for us so that we get a sense of again. The, not only the sort of the great scope of time with which we're working in, right? So David living at about a thousand years before Jesus, right? So about a thousand years before the book of Luke is written, we read this great covenant that the Lord establishes with David. And a thousand years later, here's what we read. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so here's what takes place, right? Jesus comes and he is inextricably linked to this great covenant to this promise that the Lord has given to His servant David. And so what I want to do this morning really quickly is just kind of walk through the ways in which Jesus Himself is the fulfillment of the promise of relief from the enemy, the promise of a great name, the promise of a place, and so on and so forth. Right. So we walked through all of those things that are present in this covenant, and in it, Jesus is the bringer of Relief from the enemy, right? Romans 16 tells us that the God of peace through Jesus will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. That Jesus' name is the great name, right? Philippians 2 verse 9 tells us that God has given Jesus the name above every name, right? That, That Jesus is the one who goes to prepare a place for us. In John 14, Jesus speaking says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that you may be where I am also. That Jesus is the one who establishes peace. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, it tells us that he himself is our peace. That Jesus is the one who prepares us a house. That Ephesians 2.22 tells us that in Him we are being built together into that dwelling place for God. So God is not only going to provide a place for us, but He's going to provide a place for Himself in us. 
and that he does that through Jesus. That Jesus is the revealed offspring of David, that when we go to Matthew 1, verse 1, it tells us that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Inextricably linked to those two promises that God has made to these two men. That Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom when in Matthew 3, 2, he says, repent, the kingdom is at hand. That Jesus is the one who disciplines. The promised discipline is given to us, shown to us by the love of Jesus. In Revelation 3, 19, Jesus himself says, those whom I love, I discipline and reprove, so be zealous and repent. And so what we clearly begin to see as we survey the the breadth of Scripture, and as we survey this covenant, we begin to see very clearly that Jesus is this this promised one, this this promised one who will bring these, these truths, these promises to bear upon His people. And here's what's incredible, I think, about all of it. We can see that God's promises are, are not contingent upon our, on, upon our performance. What we go on to know about, about David is that he, he fails pretty significantly um, in terms, from, from a moral standpoint, but also sort of from a leadership standpoint. And what we see really throughout the rest of the Old Testament, those books that are before Jesus, is that this people, again, often fails to to do that which we would think the Lord would require of them in order for them to be called His people. But the truth of the matter is that, like we always say here at Sojourn, that what God decrees comes to pass. And that God decreed that through His servant David that, that one would come and would establish all of these things forever. And we see that that is Jesus. And so what God is doing, He has invited us into His doing that, by His grace, that we might watch, that we might marvel at His powerful hand at work. And here's, here's the crux of what I want us to get to, I think, in, in, in all of this. In this final, these final couple of verses, verse 14, it says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So the single determining factor in God's enduring love is simply that he's chosen to give it. It's simply that. It's simply that he's chosen to give it. And here's the beauty of the gospel is that this, this discipline, right, that he will enact, that, that Jesus will enact, Jesus first took upon himself. That Jesus was disciplined in our stead. That the discipliner became the disciplined for our sake. This is the gospel that's being preached to us 1,000 years before Jesus ever sets foot in bodily form on planet earth. We are told that this discipline will be meted out, but it is meted out in such a way that the love of God does not depart from us because it has been secured eternally in and through the perfect good work of Jesus. So there's two things that I think 
this all comes down to in terms of getting back to kind of what we're talking about in this idea of love. Number one, I think for us, because the only representation of love that we have currently uh, that, that feels most visible, let me say that, that feels most, most significant, that is most that we're most able to sort of put our hands on to feel that is most tangible is, is that that we have for one another, right? So it's more fickle. Um, even in those most loving relationships, like a, a parent uh, to a son or to a daughter, there's still a sense in which we feel we have to earn that father's love or that, that mother's love, or there's a sense in which the parents feel like they have to earn their children's love, right? There's, there's an imperfection there that we experience. And so I think many of us sort of put that upon God. We believe that He is fickle and that He is also looking for us to earn for ourselves His love. And yet the fact of the matter is that God will love us because He said He would do it. It's as simple as that. And so if you're a follower of Jesus in the morning, you can rest in the fact that God loves you, again, not because of anything you ever have done or ever will do, but because He said He would do it. And because he's faithful to do it. And here's what I want, want to, to really drill down to. God's love will never depart from us because his love is not conditional. If God's love were conditional, meaning if there was a condition that needed to be fulfilled on our end, then we would have no hope because there's no if statement that we can provide that would result in the then statement of, of God's love, right? You know what a conditional statement is, right? If, then. If this is true, then this is what comes to pass. There's no if that we can provide. There's no amount of things that I can put in this place over here that results in God saying, all right, then I love you. The simple fact of the matter is that God has unconditionally said to us, I love you. So if we want to go back to that singular question that we asked at the beginning of the gathering, which is, what is love? Love is by necessity an unconditional agreement to be for the other's good. So at the moment that love become con com becomes conditional, it ceases to be love, right? The moment that we place a condition on our love, the moment that we, that we place any if statement before the then of our love, love ceases to exist. And here's, what's, here's what makes that such a, such a difficult thing for us. Is that the only love that the only love that we've really experienced or think we've experienced has been conditional in nature? Right. That's why we get told, even even in Christian circles, we get told if this person doesn't sort of have a uh, create a sense of value in you, or if they don't have any value in terms of their their engagement with your life and with your family, or, or however that looks, that that they're really just kind of not worthy of your time. It's one of the reasons I think we struggle so much even to just engage like with, with our neighbors, people who don't believe like we do. Because it's like, okay, well, what, what value do they bring to my life? None. If nothing, if, if nothing else, they bring nothing but, <laughs> but, but strife. And then I have to sit here and sort of constantly defend what I believe, constantly be called um, maybe intellectually uh, incapable of understanding a world without God or whatever it might be. 
right? Everything in American culture is, is a value-based relationship. It's like the moment that that thing stops providing the value for which I, I own it is the moment at which I put it away. And so the reason that we not only long for a love that we haven't experienced, but the reason that we don't experience love is because we have no good understanding of it apart from, apart from Christ. Love can only be truly found and provided through and by Jesus. And so 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, I just want to read it because I think it's, it's appropriate. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And it's in this that the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son, the promised Son, into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So here's the thing. We've talked about all these things that we long for in life, where we long for a hope that is real. We long for a peace that is satisfying and that, is, that has longevity to it. We long for a joy that is satisfying, that is, that is fulfilling, that, that keeps us grounded and we long for a love that, that is beyond, beyond the realm of, of condition. Because we know that even in our most sincere attempts, even in our most sincere desires to show and give love, we failed. And yet the beauty of real love, God's love, the love of God is that it is not conditional in any way, shape, or form, that, that He has shown us love through His Son, that He has shown that that love is a love that will be enduring, that it is a steadfast love that endures forever, as we proclaimed earlier, as Psalm 89 says over and over and over again, this King, this man David, continually recites this truth, that He will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever, that with, with His mouth He will make known the faithfulness of God to all generations, that steadfast love will be built up forever, and that in the heavens God will establish His faithfulness. And that God Himself said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant that I will establish his offspring forever and build his throne for all generations. And in Jesus' first advent, he has done that finally, fully. And in his second advent, we will rejoice in its fullness being brought to bear across all nations, across every inch and sphere of God's creation for the sake of his name's glory. And look, you and I get to experience in that for one reason and one reason alone. And that's, that's that God in His mercy and in His kindness and in His love has sought you out to give to you that which you could not give to yourself, that which you could not earn for yourself, that which you could not acquire of your own volition. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that we celebrate during the season of Advent. And this is the good news that we see throughout the continuous story of the Bible, right? This is why it's important for us 
to gaze upon this Old Testament, to see that what the Lord was doing was never a plan B. That God's love is not a plan B, it's plan A. And that He's given it to you in Christ and that Christ from before time had endeavored to show His love to us in and through His incarnation, in and through His work on the cross, His resurrection over our sin and death, and in His final and full return to reign as the King of kings, the Prince of peace, Almighty God, everlasting Father. Let's worship Him this morning in light of that truth. Let's pray.